This is the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. My name is Ansel Lindner, and I'm keeping you ahead of the curve in Bitcoin. What's up, Bitcoiners? Welcome back to the Bitcoin and Markets podcast. It's been a while. This is the second kind of hiatus that I've taken in the history of this podcast. I've been doing it for about four and a half years now. Of course, recent months, as everyone knows, it's been crazy uh, with uh, the COVID stuff, the lockdowns. I moved in the middle of that, and uh, I, I'm the father of four. And so it was crazy moving across town and getting set up, getting everything to go. Like I'm the stay-at-home dad here pretty much. So it was a rough time. Plus I have I had a lot of projects that were simmering and I took this opportunity as well to get a lot of these projects launched and a lot of the projects out there. So uh, I want to go through a few of those here or all of them, I guess. Um, first off, I have been doing podcasts. If you go to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast feed or their YouTube channel, uh, you can find FedWatch. I've been doing that show now with Christian from Bitcoin Magazine. Um, I've been doing that with him now for, gosh, it's like 10 episodes or 12 episodes we've done through that time once a week. Uh, we concentrate on Fed stuff or ECB stuff, central bank stuff, uh, macro, and tie that into Bitcoin. So we, we, this, like one of the episodes that was kind of my favorite episode was we watched Powell's testimony in front of Congress and commented on it. Uh, you know, we just pulled out about uh, eight to 10 minutes worth of his audio and then commented on it. That was probably my favorite episode we've done. Um, but go over there, check it out, subscribe over to that feed if you haven't, uh, because I know I have a lot of loyal fans here on this feed and I've been letting you down by not producing content over here. Uh, but uh, that is where I've been for the podcast side. Otherwise, I have been doing the weekly newsletter that is, it's just growing and growing. And uh, <laughs> there's so much information in there. It's, I don't know, it's almost too much to be free, but it, that's a free newsletter that goes out every Friday. Uh, Jeff, good friend, that's part of the community. He um, has helped with that for, since the beginning. And we just hit issue 100. We actually put out issue 101 last week. So uh, go subscribe over there. It's tons of tons of information. There's a short link, bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash report, and that'll take you to the subscription. I've also have a member newsletter that comes out several times a week uh, that is with charts, price analysis and stuff. Uh, it's been very lucrative. It's been right on with um, most of my calls over the last uh, few months uh, over there on the member newsletter. Um, you know, try to uh, stay uh, a week or two ahead of where this market is, right? And detail out, not only with fundamentals, but with technical analysis. So, and I have extended vitals uh, for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin ecosystem um, on each each one of those as well. So um, I don't know exactly if I'm going to be keeping these newsletters exactly the same because uh, as I restart this uh, Bitcoin and Markets podcast, I'm going to be restarting uh, a new website. I'm going to a ghost blog. So I'm trying to go away from Patreon and MailChimp and go just to the ghost blog. So uh, that is going to be coming shortly. And I think I'm going to make the free newsletter come out more often uh, and make the member newsletter weekly, you know, kind of swap them, but keep the, the content the same. So the member newsletter is technical analysis, um, price, and things like that, like pe that people really want uh, to get a deep dive on. Um, but the free one is going to be, you know, a lot of news and charts from around the space that happened that week, uh, some 
commentary. Uh, we talk about mining on there. What else? We talk about stable coins, altcoins, and things. So uh, just kind of getting a broad sweep of each week. Uh, but that will be coming out more regularly, I think, and be a little shorter. I think that will benefit a lot of people. But anyway, so that's this podcast. It's still going and it's growing. So uh, of course, I haven't produced a show in a while, but uh, the newsletters are doing well and uh, things are growing. The other uh, two other things that I've launched here in the last couple months. So uh, Bitcoin and Markets Research, that is an effort with another friend, Kent uh, Polkinghorne, that is he has some international experience and he has uh, years of studying the macro space and studying currencies and central bank stuff. Uh, so over there, uh, btcm.co is a new blog that we're starting. Um, we're starting to hit our stride, getting more blogs out. Hopefully we can get two out a week. Uh, and there, there will be a paid part of that. But for the meantime, everything is uh, being released for free. I think we're going to do more of like a uh, portfolio type thing, and that's going to be um, a paid service. And last but not least is the Bitcoin Dictionary. I've been working on this for years, years. On my website, I had a glossary, a Bitcoin glossary for a long time, and I slowly was adding words, you know, throughout the years. Um, but it's, I think it's very important to get these terms, okay? And then about a year ago, I said, hey, why don't I do a dictionary? And then for about the last six months, I really started working harder on it. Uh, so it's been a long time coming, but this Bitcoin dictionary is great, man. It is 180 terms. So there's a definition for each, and then almost all of them have uh, explanations. Some of them don't like FUD. I put FUD in there that just has a definition and not an explanation, but something like Austrian economics, I have a definition and then, well, why don't I read that? I'll read you my definition for Austrian economics, not the explanation because that's where it gets long. Um, I try to get people into the feel here. I think I also have about 50 footnotes for people. Um, and so this is Austrian economics out of the Bitcoin dictionary, an economic school of thought built on logical deduction from economic axioms and individual subjective value. Its core concepts are private property, market economics, entrepreneurship, sound money, and prices. These core concepts can be logically deduced from the action axiom. Human action is purposeful behavior. This study of human action is called praxeology. So that is just the definition. And then I have a whole page here of history, uh, more details about what Austrian economics is. And of course, with, uh, I think, several footnotes just in this. Let's see. Yeah, I have two footnotes in just this definition. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot going on here. And uh, it's, it's a great value. 180 terms is great beginner stuff for people getting into the space. It's also great for anyone that is you're introducing somebody, say at a meetup or, or you're introducing a brother-in-law or something to, uh, to Bitcoin. And he's like, what is an ASIC? And you're like, oh man, I can't really describe what it is. Well, I can look it up in the Bitcoin dictionary and there is a term or there is a definition with an explanation. So um, I put that all together. It's available on Kindle right now. And the paperback is coming. I keep saying for the last couple of weeks, it's the paperback's coming. But the paperback is coming very shortly. I just have to get a cover made and it will be up. What else? That's it. That's it for what I have been producing, the content I have been producing and, and releasing here. And then again, I'm going to start this podcast going again. 
haven't decided exactly the what format I'm going to be using for it, but it's coming. All right. Now, in this episode, the rest of this episode is going to be a replay of my interview, my recent interview with Danielle DiMartino Booth over there on FedWatch with Christian. Um, Danielle is a Fed insider or a lot of macro experience. And so she's been around. I've been listening to her for five years, four years. So she has a lot of stuff to say about macro and central banking, which is right in line with what the Fed Watch show is all about. Now, at the end, we ask her about Bitcoin. And so we get her thoughts on on Bitcoin. But, uh, I mean, we had to react to this a little bit, but we don't want to react right there to her and uh, turn it into some sort of confrontation, right? So... What, we're, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play this episode of just the interview with, with uh, Danielle. So I'm going to cut down the FedWatch episode a little bit here. And then I'm going to come back and give you my reaction to what she said. But if you want to subscribe to FedWatch, go to the Bitcoin Magazine feed and you'll find it there. I'm, I'm hoping to get those listener numbers up. And I know this show has a lot of loyal fans. Like People have been messaging me over the last uh, month saying... Hey, are you going to be producing episodes? I'm like, yes, I'm going to be doing more. But if you want to listen now, you can go over to FedWatch because we have been doing a lot of stuff over there. Anyways, okay, let's get into this episode. Thank you guys for supporting me all this time. And we, uh, you know, it's going to be Bitcoin and Marcus is going to be back and better than ever in a very short period of time. So stay subscribed and we will catch you on the flip side. All right, roll the interview. Danielle, uh, I've been listening to your commentary for a few years. We're excited to talk to you. Welcome to FedWatch. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great name, FedWatch. I do a lot of that. <laughs> well, we uh, wanted to start with your broad view, your 20,000-foot uh, view of the current economic situation. So can you fill us in there? Uh, so we've had, uh, we've had two weeks in a row of rising initial jobless claims. Uh, we're seeing continuing claims rise. So uh, it, there, there seems to be a lot of letters in this world to describe economic cycles. It seems to be all the rage. So I would say that we're at the beginning of the W. So we're, uh, the, the economy uh, mathematically came roaring back in the second quarter, and I think we're sliding back into recession now. When you say the economy came roaring back, are you talking more specifically about the stock market or the economy in general? Mm. Well, I think a lot of the metrics that we follow, right, the, the, the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index that gauges uh, how the, the, the surprise factor, whether it's an upside or a downside surprise, it got to a record high because your ISM was like, wow, look at the V-shape, your, your housing. Um, but, but again, if you're going to drop to the depths that we drop to, you know, we, we know that second quarter GDP dropped by 329 Percent, it's kind of a biblical decline. You know that any type of reopening impulse, macroeconomically speaking, is going to produce what looks to be a V. So that's when I, that, that's when I say roaring back in in the second quarter. That's as opposed to, you know, dissolving into nothing, into a greater depression. So again, there was a there. It, it, a lot of it is just math. So are you expecting that to continue? Are you expecting the Fed to be able to manufacture a complete V-shaped recovery? Or are you thinking it's going to be more of an L-shaped non-recovery? 
No, I think right now, like I said, I think we're heading into a, w, a, a double dip recession right now. Um, so for, for, for the average man on the street, woman on the street, it, it might feel a lot more like an L. Uh, but for a lot of restaurant owners, let's say, for example, you know, who, who reopened and that now they've had to reclose their restaurants and some of her are, are closing for good. Uh, you know, this has been as, as devastating as can be. The L would certainly be more appropriate for a lot of the businesses that are going bankrupt, liquidating, closing, however you want to put it. Uh, but the Fed has engineered a rebound in risky asset prices. Uh, but we have to bear in mind that the Fed's balance sheet in the trillions is a reflection of what they've done for investors, for Wall Street. The Main Street lending program was, I believe, $14 million. Uh, so they're, they're doing a whole lot of nothing in terms of engendering an economic recovery, unless you believe that the stock market is the economy, which many Americans would not. Well, kind of, you know, playing devil's advocate on that, um, I, I've seen a lot of arguments about the stock market kind of becoming a new savings technology. And as savings rates go up, people are just, you know, trying to find yield. They're trying to save in a way that, um, you know, can make a difference into their lives. And so they're dumping money into the stock market. Do you see that continuing or like what's your assessment of that statement? Well, we definitely have record retail participation that even puts 1999 and 2000 in the dust. Um, uh, uh, and, and the best part about it is these are young investors, so they can afford to lose everything because they've got the rest of their lives in front of them to understand that the stock market is never a savings vehicle. That is the most naive perception I have ever heard. What, what young investors need to understand is that saving is actually saving and that the return you get on your savings is then reflected in how you in how you design your portfolio but the stock market as a savings vehicle is a fallacy but again all of these robin hoodies all of these young investors who are playing the stock market and running the stock of kodak up by thousands of percent and running after oil when it's going negative and i mean it's extremely entertaining to watch from somebody who's been in the market markets for decades, but I think that this will actually benefit the youngest investors who are doing this because they will get an early lesson in life about how very badly the stock market can burn them. But they, again, they've got the rest of their careers in front of them to understand that saving and investing are completely divorced from one another. Okay, so let's jump into 2009. During 2009, the epicenter of the crisis really kind of revolved around mortgage-backed securities, uh, especially subprime and kind of toxic um, assets on that front. Um, where do you think the epicenter is of this crisis? Uh, and then as a follow-on to that question, if you could comment on you know, where real estate plays into this crisis. <laughs> Those are two very, very different uh, questions. Um, Obviously, subprime was where it was last time around. You were able to see a massive run-up in household debt to GDP. This time, it has been in the corporate sector. And if you liken the triple B slice of the investment-grade uh, bond market, you get to around the same level dollar-wise as you had during subprime, about $3 trillion to $3 trillion. But if, if you will, if you want to look at it as a percentage of GDP, as we used to look at household debt to GDP in the run-up to the subprime crisis, uh, non-financial debt as a percentage of GDP was 
as of the end of 2019. That was a record level of leverage in across the corporate business spectrum, non-financial. And now that we have seen the decline that we have and, and non-financial debt increased by 2.5 trillion dollars in the first half of 2020, we've now got that ratio closer to 95%. So nothing in the history of the country has ever seen uh, businesses as as buried in debt as they are right now. So it is the corporate sector that will be the epicenter of the current credit crisis, as opposed to what you rightly point out as the household sector. Now, how does real estate play into this? Real estate, unfortunately, has been viewed uh, by many investors as kind of a hard asset class, a way to diversify themselves away from publicly traded investments. The problem with real estate is that it acts beautifully as a hedge as long as the economy is in a recovery state and, 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 and expanding. During times of disruption, during times of contraction, real estate becomes pro-cyclical. So it's going to move in the same direction as the rest of your portfolio. Now, because COVID has compressed time as it has, we've seen the cycles for real estate that normally would be lagged by maybe 18 months or so. We've seen time compress and a massive amount of stress emerge in commercial real estate that is causing real problems in the here and now because of the manner in which the economy was forcibly shut down. So whether you're talking about lodging or retail, even office and multifamily, we're seeing delinquencies uh, move up at a very, very fast pace. That being said, it is one of the few areas that the Fed has not completely intervened in uh, that being real estate. So there are there are pockets of opportunity for distressed investors. Danielle, um, sorry, sorry um, do you view this as a, a process? Like, so it, there's a different, this time around, it's uh, the corporate side. Uh, 2009 was the mortgage-backed security side. Do you uh, see a connection between those? Is it a continuing process that started in 2008 where it's reemerging as a corporate problem today and can it be fixed and then maybe it reappears 10 years again from now as a different, maybe a sovereign debt crisis or something like that. Do you see a, uh, this as like a process, a bigger process? Well, it, you could look at it as a process that started in 1987 and each time the Fed has had to intervene in order to backstop investor losses, which is effectively what they do, they've had to be lower for even longer. And each time the bubble manifests in a different form, if you will, uh, if it is going to be a sovereign debt bubble that we're looking at over the next decade or so, then you're talking about the resolution of such uh, a, a process. You're talking about the end of a process. And that is assuming that confidence in central banking holds to push us through an entire another decade, which would, if that is the case, presumably end in something akin to a debt jubilee. Yeah, debt jubilee, end of a process. Um, that, so that goes to my next question is, um, do we need a Bretton Woods 2.0? Like, does this end in five to 10 years with a revamping of the entire monetary system in a Bretton Woods type uh, scenario. So um, I, I'm gonna jump ahead here. Uh, because of how the Fed has established its ability to intervene in markets 
that are prohibited by the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 by setting up special purpose vehicles on the Treasury's balance sheet, uh, I think that we would sooner arrive at a plaza accord whereby uh, hopefully uh, rational people in Congress, which is an oxymoron, uh, step in and and force there to be a redivision between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 stipulates that the Fed must be apolitical, an independent federal agency, and that means that there should not be any control on the part of the Treasury, which has, uh, you've now seen those two come together uh, which is a big no-no, and I think the separation would bring us back to more like a Plaza Accord of 1951. Great. Okay, my next question then is, uh, I thought Christian had a question for you there. Um, as Bitcoiners and sound money people, you know, we've been expecting uh, weakness in the dollar. And that actually, that might be an understatement. We've been expecting hyperinflation in the dollar. So, uh, but over the last two years, I've been really, really convinced by uh, Brett Johnson and the dollar milkshake, uh, Jeff Schneider and Euro dollar, you know, the mechanics of the Euro dollar system. Where, where do you see the dollar? Um, I see it as like a deflationary environment. Um, what do you see out there? Well, dollar is obviously, I mean, that, that, that's the trickiest part of the equation, because if you're going to see persistent dollar weakness, then you are talking about, um, you're talking about much bigger issues. Uh, if, you, if we are going to see inflation, again, you start, to, uh, you start to deviate from talking about a cold war, talking about a currency war, into something much more daunting, much more hot war-ish, much more troops on the ground. Uh, and I, I don't mean to be hyperbolic about this, but because we know that Europe is in worse shape, because we know that Europe, Europe's banking system was never cleaned up to the same extent that ours that the, that the U.S. banking system was in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. Because we know that, that, that Japan has its own idiosyncratic internal massive debt uh, situation, we know the yen is also not a candidate, and we know that the yuan has absolutely no uptake at all. Uptake at all. So in order for you to talk about the long-term weakness of the dollar, there has to be a presupposition that it can be replaced by something. And where we are right now is not, we're, we're not in that place. And it, it doesn't benefit China to, to, to pull the nuclear option, to liquidate their treasury portfolio at a time when China's economic growth is a three decade low. So they would end up hurting themselves worse than they would hurting us. So it would be political and economic suicide on the part of the Chinese. So as much as we would like to think that we are at that moment, I think that it would take something more along the lines of a modern monetary theory, a socialism type of political system in the United States, not 25, but call it $50 trillion of US debt, something that would be so big compared to where we are now that, and, and, and there are, there's a lot of macroeconomic activity in between here and there, right? That's the United States staying in a deep and dark recession. Modern monetary theory, Congress enacting socialism, paying people to stay off, um, out of work, 
that means that we're going to have a, an economic cataclysm, that this is going to be the most drawn out recession that we've seen in a long time, such that they would double the national debt. But if something like that happens, then there's a good chance that we end up being a weaker nation, comparatively speaking to other nations, such that there is an opportunity to displace the dollar. But as things stand right now, the rest of the world is more messed up. I mean, do, do you see that continuing or do, like what, what's your assessment of like the trajectory right now? It seems of like everyone is just trying to deal with it. Yeah. Well, global growth is, is a tricky situation, right? Because uh, we've had a, a saturation, if you will, of the urbanization process in China. So even though China is only 17% of global GDP, let's say, uh, the swing factor, the marginal drive, if you will, uh, of global growth has been China for a generation as they've brought millions and millions and millions of people out of the countryside into their cities, built out the infrastructure to accommodate them, built out a middle class that has the, in, in turn the ability, the pricing power to go out and buy things and become a consuming nation, not just an exporting manufacturing nation. So the reason I go through all, the, all of this detail is that you have to find something to replace China in order to maintain global growth at the levels that we'd seen before. Because the corona crisis has been so, so devastating for India, so devastating, you are going to see a major setback in the ability for India to become the next China, if you will, because the infrastructure needs in India uh, are, are immense. The investment opportunities there are also immense. The population is obviously gigantic. The demographics are better. The educational system, their, the educational attainment in India is also very good. However, the corruption in the government and how the coronavirus has been uh, has been handled by the government is going to set India back for a while, which means that all of the countries that have depended on China for their exports, whether you're talking about Chile or Brazil or Australia or a large part of Southeast Asia, they're going to continue to be dependent upon China uh, to buy their resources, but China's not going to be able to grow at the same rate it was. So we will have a continued sclerosis, if you will, across the global spectrum. There will be winners and losers here and there, especially countries that benefit from, from countries who want to, from companies that want to move their uh, production capabilities outside of mainland China. So there will be pockets in the emerging markets, especially in Asia, uh, that win. But the devastation of the coronavirus in South America and in Mexico, these are major trading partners, uh, is going to set back global growth for some time to come, leaving the onus on the United States to pick up the global economy. Yeah, I'll add on to the saturation of the urbanization in China. There's also, um, would you say, a saturation of just the debt, the ability for China to take on more debt to expand, continue to expand. And well, where India has less, less debt so they can maybe finance more expansion. That is certainly the case on paper. Um, but the way China handles its financing is by gunpoint. And if, if they need to find a new outlet uh, in order to create debt, 
uh, a few years ago, they said, okay, well, we, we've got a bunch of bad debt. We need to find a place to park it. So they created a municipal finance market, I mean, a municipal bond market, like voila, out of thin air, because they can, they're officials and they can control their economy. I mean, I hate to get in the face of some major hedge fund guys who are like, it's ending, the world's over, short it all, the banking system in China is going to blow up. No, not really. It can be a managed decline. I think China is now introducing private equity. So because they have resources still, uh, and because of the way that they, uh, that, that they put monetary policy and put economic policy out there, again, by effective gunpoint, they can buy themselves more time than we think they can, but they're gonna be most, most focused, focused on shoring up their domestic economy and the implications for exporting nations into China, therefore, are grave. And again, I speak to South America, I speak to Australia, et cetera. Australia's about to go into its first recession in 40 years. I'm sorry, in 30 years. India's going into its first recession in 40 years. It sounds like when you're describing the the future state of China and maybe even the U.S. is like this kind of grinding down, uh, deflating. Um, do you see deflation or inflation? You know, kind of in these major uh, markets. Well, you've got you've got competing uh, you've got competing elements here, right? Because if you're going to, I mean, we have to remember you have to put things in context. In the post-war era in the United States, the highest unemployment rate that we have seen is 10%. That was the peak of the global financial crisis. So in the post-war era, we've never had unemployment, the likes of which we have. If you talk to people like the China Beige book, my buddy Leland Miller, if you talk to people on the ground in China, they say that unemployment is somewhere around 15 or 20%. So because the U.S. is 75% consumption, because even China is 50% consumption, if you've got that level of unemployment, by definition, you've annihilated the pricing power of the consumer. So you will have to have deflationary impulses because companies will not have an ability to pass along pricing uh, increases in pricing to the end buyer. One of the more frightening things that we're seeing today in the United States is companies are having to shore up their operations if they're going to survive and become a safer place to work. Uh, and a safer place to produce. And this is costing companies money. It's a fixed cost that's increasing while at the same time, they're not along, able to pass along these price increases. So what we're really flirting with right now, which is extremely dangerous, is, is stagflation. And that is the last thing you want to see where you have slowing growth and from the perspective of a producer or a company, rising costs, because that is the mother of all margin squeezes. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll tamper down on the ability of the economy to right itself. Ansel, you want to go to the next question? Well, I, was, I had a question taking it back to the shape of the recovery, um, because we talk a lot about a Fed put. And um, Danielle, what do you see about like a W kind of a, a double dip here? Um, do you... I mean, is the Fed then going to step in or is the, I mean, I guess the question is, what do you think about the Fed put and uh, will it be in effect on this double dip? Well, I think that Jay Powell has been very uh, forthright in saying he's going to do whatever it takes. And, you know, 
he's not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. I, I, if, if you look at the fine print, it, it was kind of trending on Twitter a few weeks ago. If you look at the fine print of the agreement with BlackRock, the, the Fed has already got equities uh, built in. So all they need to do is launch another special purpose vehicle in order to start buying equities. I think the one thing that could possibly get in the way of the Fed put is the optics with 99 days until the election of launching a, a stock buying program on the part of the Fed, which many people would paint as being blatantly political trying to keep Trump in office. And that's one misperception about Jay Powell that should be disabused. He's not political. And he's, he's never tried to do anything on behalf of Donald Trump, but rather he's trying to contain systemic risk that is built up in the, in the corporate debt market because he can't control it. That's the nature of systemic risk. That is what drives Jay Powell more than anything else. That is why he knew that the place to intervene was further out on the risk spectrum, one step beyond equities, which was junk bonds. So he understands where the risk lies. It's not in the stock market, it's in the credit market feeding back into the stock market. I see. Uh, Christian, do you want to ask the next one or uh, should we go to the Bitcoin question? <laughs> Let's go to the Bitcoin question. All right. So, Danielle, you know this is a Bitcoin Magazine podcast. Dun, dun, we do, <laughs> we do focus uh, on the Fed stuff. In our normal shows, we start by talking about headlines with the Fed, and then we wrap every show up with um, how this might affect Bitcoin or how Bitcoin might affect um, this type of a Bretton Woods 2.0 scenario. Um, my question for you is on from a macro expert, a Fed expert um, point of view, not inside of the Bitcoin bubble like we are. Um, how do you view Bitcoin? Do you view it as maybe a gold 2.0? Uh, a concept might be that uh, central banks might use it as reserves in the future, or it could stand as collateral in repos or something like that. Um, how do you view Bitcoin from that uh, perspective? Well, so you would never see any federal or sovereign uh, entity step into Bitcoin. Uh, we know that years ago, China, Venezuela, and Russia started building out their own sovereign cryptocurrencies. And we know that, that Great Britain and all the developed nations are looking into their own sovereign currencies. So that is certainly going to be uh, part of the future. I think that there is a study right now. I had a Bitcoin scam inside of my Twitter account I think they just shut it down today. Um, I, I think that from the perspective of governments, they're looking at two things when it comes to crypto. They're looking at security and they're looking at quantum because it's not an economical endeavor if you're talking about on a sovereign scale uh, and it's not secure enough yet. So I think that they're studying every hiccup, if you will, in the Bitcoin space and learning as they go, such that when FedCoin is introduced, that they're able to do it more economically and in and, and a, and a more secure manner. Uh, you know, my, my greatest fear when it comes to something like that is that if you consider the first three countries that entered into the realm, China, Venezuela, and Russia, it's clearly something that they're going to use to monitor their populations and monitor their activities. And uh, very, very not, not very often that I would actually agree with Jay Powell, but I would agree with Jay Powell in a speech he made some years ago in which he said, if there is to be a Fed coin one day, it would be equally anonymous to two individuals exchanging a $100 bill. 
And so I think that that should be the line of demarcation in between a sovereign cryptocurrency and what we have in the United States, because theoretically we're still going to retain our liberty and not have Uncle Sam peering into our accounts. But the thing about cryptocurrency that COVID has accomplished, if you will, is the acceleration, I think, of, of, a, of, of national pushes to get into the crypto space. Because, you know, people who are old like me are like, digital banking, ugh, no, I want to walk in and get a teller. Our viewpoint on that has completely changed. Now it's like, I want the telemedicine, I want my groceries delivered to my front door, and I want to do all my transactions digitally. And that is, that's been, been brought about by COVID. So I, I think that you could see an acceleration of, um, of efforts to push into sovereign cryptos uh, faster, than what we, faster than what you would expect. As far as how I see Bitcoin itself, there is no replacement for gold, period, end. Um, it is a finite by definition, uh, and I, I own gold, but I believe that Bitcoin is a rational reflection of the lack of discipline in monetary policy making. And I would be disappointed in your generation if your generation hadn't come up with something to express your equal dismay with the lack of discipline in monetary policy making. And I think that that is rightly what it is and how it should be viewed because we should be able to express the fact that 2% inflation eats away at the value of the dollar and that's a target. It's like a stated goal. I want for your currency to depreciate, as opposed to the only thing I've ever agreed with Alan Greenspan about, his inflation target in, the, in, the, in a perfect world would be 0%. And I completely agree with that. If you're, if you're a household or if you're, or if you're a business, the best place that prices can go is nowhere when it comes to the inflation that you have to stomach. So those are my views on Bitcoin. Okay, there you have it. Pretty good interview, I thought. Uh, our first guest and pretty heavy hitter, actually, for for us uh, as a little tiny podcast. But uh, she had some really good points. I'm just going to go through them here real quickly to sum them up and then react to them a little bit. So, um, again, she is a great guest with good insight. She really shows us um, what the... Fed type thinkers, what they're thinking and uh, where they are in their learning process, because we have a good understanding of Bitcoin and where it fits into the digital gold narrative, where it fits into um, uh, a savings technology and, and things of that nature. And so some of our uh, questions were not uh, super blunt, but just to get a flavor of what they're thinking. Um, uh, one of the one of our answers there about the um, the stock market as a savings vehicle. And she straight up just said, that's one of the most naive things I've ever heard. Well, I mean, I had to counter with saying that, look, that's how people save their 401ks, um, their portfolios. Most of it is in stocks or in some sort of stock market vehicle, whether it's a REIT or, uh, you know, for uh, real ways to invest in real estate or uh, some sort of bond fund um, or something like that, right? So e even if they're invested in bonds or they're invested in real estate, a lot of times it's through a stock market type product. And stocks in general, those are considered savings vehicles by the lay public, um, by everybody, um, even pension funds, right? They're supposed they 
traditionally just invested in bonds or something with a return. Roughly 6 to 7% is what they needed to be solvent. And they can't get that in any bond. Even junk bonds are 4 or 5%. So um, they have to go into the stock market as well. And, and governments, for Christ's sake, governments are, are buying uh, stocks. It's like the Israeli pension fund and, and the Japanese pension funds and all these. They're, they're just buying stocks, a lot of them. So, um, you know, even though it's not like textbook, what you should think of as, as savings, savings should be cash. And I, be, I believe that. And that's why most of my savings is in, in Bitcoin. But, um, you know, it's that's not part of what normal people think. Okay. And, uh, even heavy hitters. Um, so she, she's in line with our thinking, I believe maybe she's not quite understanding that uh, how it is on the street right out there. Um, anyway, then she, she started off by talking about the W shaped recovery. Um, that's just a different way to say double dip. And <laughs> I, I missed that half of the sentence I was taking notes or something and I missed her saying that double uh, W-shaped recovery. And so then I stupidly asked her again. But, um, I mean, a W-shaped recovery implies there's a right-hand side that gets back to normal as opposed to a L-shaped recovery that after an initial dip, uh, you might see a bounce, but you never get back to previous growth trends. Okay, there's always a uh, difference between the growth and the economy before the dip and after. And that's what we saw in 2008, by the way. We saw a dramatic uh, dip in growth, um, of course, a recession, and then it never got back to previous growth. And a V-shaped recovery is when it bounces and gets back to previous trend. A W-shaped, I'm guessing here, um, don't want to put words in her mouth on this, but W-shaped would be where it's a double dip, but it does get back to previous trend. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I, I believe it's a one in a million chance at this point that we get back to previous trend. We're most likely going to be stuck at close to zero global growth for the foreseeable future. Um, I, I agree with her where she uh, identified the corporate sector as the, this epicenter of this cycle where real estate kind of was the epicenter last time. Um, and I tried to prod her into saying if this is a process and does it go to um, from stocks to corporate to sovereign. And then she brought in like a debt jubilee. And that was a great segue into talking about Bretton Woods or Plaza Accord. Now she said a Plaza Accord. And when you think of Plaza Accord, that is when a bunch of countries got together and decided to make a controlled devaluation of the dollar, um, which implies that the dollar was too strong. So if she's going to the Plaza Accord route, um, that means that she believes that the dollar is going to strengthen. And so we ask her a little bit later what, what she thinks of inflation or deflation. And, and she went more towards stagflation, which is, I mean, a lot of people are saying that um, a lot of a lot of people that I listen to and that I kind of uh, value their analysis, they are going towards stagflation as well. Um, but that doesn't fit the Plaza Accord. OK, a Plaza Accord is more of a, a strong dollar situation, a deflationary situation. 
Okay, so what else did she did she mention there? Uh, well, as part of the stagflation, she talked about the MMT. So it, we'd have to bring in something to destroy the system. Um, that if we're going to replace a system with the Bretton Woods, there would need to be some destruction, right? And possibly Bretton Woods is the way to, or not Bretton Woods, uh, MMT is the way to destroy the system before we could get a Bretton Woods uh, to come in. So, um, yeah, that's, I guess that's what she's thinking there. Okay. Global growth. Now this was the most interesting part to me because this is where I, I focus a lot of my thinking and writing is on the global growth side. And again, she, I agree with her, uh, highlighting China as they had this mass urbanization and, you know, they brought like what half a billion people out of the countryside or even a billion i'm not i'm not sure the exact numbers out of the countrysides and into the cities um and along with that they had the boom of urbanization and they could, they just absorbed as much debt as possible um to grow at that rate for that long it was like 30 years of 10 percent growth or higher um that's not going to continue and she doesn't think that's going to continue and i don't think that's going to continue um I think that that puts a huge damper, though, on debt. So um, if they were, you know, like if, if you're used to rolling over your credit cards all the time, like China is, China's like <laughs> figuratively, um, and then one day they're like, oh, well, we're not going to roll this over. What happens? It's not a soft landing. All right. It's, it's a hard landing. You lose a lot of that growth that came. So let's say if you totaled everything, uh, over the last 20 years, China grew a thousand percent. Okay. Let's just say, um, but in a crash, you could lose 50% of that 50% of whatever you gained during the boom goes bust. And so from this point right here, we're looking at China losing 50% roughly. Uh, that's, that's a shot in the dark ballpark figure on my side. Um, so that's a lot different story than just slow growth. It's actually um, destruction happening over there in China in, in that regard. So um, that we differ big time on on that aspect. She also uh, talked about India sliding into recession. She talked about the effect of the CCP virus on South America and India and, and a lot of other places in Asia. Um, and she was thinking that it was going to be more pronounced than what I think the coronavirus is going to be going forward. But uh, she's not a big bull on India. Uh, she's kind of neutral on both India and China, it sounds like to me. Um, I might have to go back and, and listen to it again. But uh, to me, it's she sounded equally neutral, equally neutral on South America as well. I mean, the big, her big bullish, we didn't even talk about Europe, actually, but the big bullish case that she's talking about is just bullish the u.s um, we actually agree on this but i'm more bullish on other places as they divest as people divest from china divest supply chains divest financially uh, from chinese the chinese economy so i can see um, places like southeast asia actually getting a boost in, in the short term maybe one to two years india as well um, and then uh, the U.S. as being the growth engine going forward when you look two to five years out and maybe five to ten. 
but we'll we'll see how you know the currency situation has to get figured out first because if if you believe in a strengthening dollar uh, or if you have a dollar positive thesis here um that's that makes growth hard uh, on the US and something has to occur to allow the US to grow and so I think once that does occur the US will boom but until then it's going to be stagnation not uh, stagflation, but just stagnation in my mind. Um, I think she also undersells the, well, she says about China, um, they can buy themselves more time than we think when it comes to debt, because I, I brought up, she said over urbanization and I was like over in indebtedness basically. Um, and she said that they can extend for longer than we think, which is true. They can probably roll over their credit cards over and over, but Think about what we're geopolitically what's happening here with Taiwan and Hong Kong and the South China Sea and Japan remilitarizing or building their navy back up. Um, now, India, you know, China and India have had their their military disputes and it's not over in that region. They're they're still massing troops on the border. So um, put it in to put it in that context of um, surrounding it with a vested interest in divesting people from China, uh, divesting supply chains from China and a over indebtedness problem. Um, I don't think they can push it. I don't think that it will last very long. Yeah. It'll probably be longer than if it feels like it could happen any day now or in the next six months to a year, it probably would take two years or something, but, um, eventually it's going to crash. And how does the CCP remain in control of that country? If, um, they have a 50% drawdown in their GDP. I mean, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult in the face of the West. I mean, it goes one of two ways, right? Either the CCP breaks up and some sort of Taiwan-like government takes over in Beijing, or the CCP cracks down and gets more militaristic and that would be like a more like a North Korea and closes off. Um, and then what happens? <laughs> Their economy contracts even more, even more. Um, and so uh, I, I think that China is coming to a head here, um, both financially, uh, geopolitically, and demographically. If you look at demographics, it's, it's, a, it's a horror show over there in China. I mean, I think the only country with worse demographics is Japan. Um, but Japan is much more open to the outside world, at least if when you look into the future, 10 to 20 years, um, there's at least some glimmer of hope of maybe getting some immigrants in there or somehow changing policy. But uh, with China, it doesn't look that way at all. It's, it's um, going to grind further and further down. Okay, and then we get into the Bitcoin question. And of course, my show is a Bitcoin show. Um, and the Fed watch is... Well, the Fed watch is more towards central bank stuff, okay? But it's also a Bitcoin show, and so we have to discuss Bitcoin. Her her points here um, were well. I didn't want to come out straight up and say, <laughs> you know, fire some real uh, niche Bitcoin questions at her, um, because I didn't. It like I said in the intro to this uh, this episode is that I didn't want to make it confrontational. I didn't want to uh, call her out on anything that she's saying was wrong or right or 
whatever. I just wanted to let her talk and uh, get insight from her answers. And I think we did, uh, we did a good job of that, but she, so she's talking about, uh, she's not hot, uh, hyped on Bitcoin at all. She is more about CBDCs and sovereign. She called them sovereign cryptocurrencies. Um, there's a problem with that. These systems are decentralized. Um, and so they have a restriction on supply. If you're a sovereign cryptocurrency, you don't have that. I mean, if that's even a term, sovereign cryptocurrency, it'd just be a sovereign currency, basically. Um, and uh, they don't have that. There's nothing different be between a sovereign token and a sovereign currency, which would be like the dollar or the yen or the yuan. Nothing different. Nothing different. The, the only slight difference would be a payments difference. You might be able to have more payments infrastructure, but again, that's trivial. The, why hasn't it happened un up until now? It's not because they haven't had the technology. I mean, you can do pay, you can do credit card payments 24 seven, right? Well, why can't you do bank payments? Well, tradition is just slow. And in a lot of countries they did, they have opened it up that way. So, um, you know, it's, it's just tradition. It's just slow. Payments have nothing to do with the form of money. The form of money and payments are different. Bitcoin happens to also have, it's a money or a good. I don't want to step on people's toes here. They're listening to this. I don't want to say that it's money, um, but it's a good and it has a payments property, but the payment, the payments Bitcoin payments is not like what is Bitcoin, right? There, there's a difference here, a method of payment or a means of payment and a medium of exchange are two separate ideas. So I, I don't know if she's worked that out. I mean, obviously she has worked that out, but uh, she is struggling to apply that to Bitcoin, I believe. But yeah, she's, she's, kind of waiting for pe other people to do the studies or to uh, look at it, other people in her uh, kind of in-group or her peer group. Um, and uh, not she's not being on the leading edge of this, this space or this technology or money in general. I mean, Bitcoin is the leading edge of money and finance. All right, what else? She did speak about being concerned with privacy and a fed coin will have to be private of course that's impossible <laughs> uh, it, it's a she's on our side and she agrees with us ideologically on this uh, or philosophically on this about uh, privacy being important you know and fungibility being important uh, but how does that work with a centralized token it doesn't it doesn't work and so this uh you know, it's just one of those things where you got to think through it. And, and most likely what they're going to end up doing, honestly, is they're going to put like the Fed in charge of one aspect, um, the Treasury in charge of another aspect, and maybe like, uh, you know, some too big to fails or something in charge of other aspects of it. So you're breaking up the authority um, with somewhat of checks and balances. I'm, I'm just throwing that out there that, that, that that's a possibility. And lastly, she says that she would be disappointed in our generation if we didn't come up with this as a reaction to the, the system as we have it today. And 
Of course, I agree with that. Um, but I think it's inevitable. It's an in- inevitable push. But our generation, this reaction of our generation, um, it's just like sound money. People want to hold scarce things, you know, and the money is people hold money because of uh, many different reasons um, to carry value into the future, um, to do economic calculation by um, all there's many, many reasons and to spend it. I mean, just to ship it across borders. I could go on and on, guys, but I'm going to leave it there for this episode. Thank you for joining me. This was a listen and reaction to my own interview with DiMartino Booth over there on FedWatch. Check out FedWatch. It's on the Bitcoin magazine feed. Uh, Christian is the co-host or the main host, and I am the co-host over there. Um, you just look at the Bitcoin magazine feed and you'll find it. Uh, this podcast will be coming back on a regular basis soon in the near future so stay stay subscribed um thank you for subscribing and sticking with me check out the newsletters um support me out over on patreon patreon.com forward slash bitcoin and markets to keep this stuff going and uh to keep me um creating content also uh, the bitcoin dictionary is out on kindle it will be out paperback shortly um i'll put it up for pre-order on the paperback so you guys can pre-order that um within the next few days i'll do that But uh, yeah, thanks guys for listening. See you next time.